Well, good morning. Great to be with you guys this morning. We are going to continue in our series that we've been on for the last couple of months called History, focusing in on the first three letters of that word, H-I-S, His Story. And so we're going to do that again. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, I've had these moments in my life that I would call, you know, uh-oh moments. Let me explain for you real quick what I'm talking about here. You know, it's that moment where you're kind of faced with a decision of, well, do I do the right thing or do I do the thing that I want to do, right? And it's like, I remember growing up as a kid, these little cartoons that, that would have like the devil on one shoulder and then the angel on the other, and they start talking to each other and trying to convince the individual. And I, too many times in my life, I have unfortunately done what the devil Bradley has said to do versus what the angel Bradley has said to do. And in those moments when we find ourselves wondering, how did we get here? How did I get to this position? That's what I kind of call those uh-oh moments. And here's the reality is that the Bible teaches us that really all of us have those moments multiple, multiple times. And the reason being is because it's our natural desires. It's who we are as people. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, and that's where we're going to start off today. So if you have your sermon notes, take that out. It's right inside your program. Or if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Romans chapter 7, and the verses will also be on the screen. And here's what Romans 7, 18 through 21 says. And it says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, my sinful nature. And you see, the reality is, Paul is telling us right off the bat that that is our natural self. When we are born into a broken world, we are born into sin, so our natural inclination is to sin. That's just the reality of it. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is the sin that's living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. You ever felt like that? I mean, I know I have many times. And again, what we're dealing with here is, is our sinful nature. And the reality is that we don't have the power within us, our own selves, to overcome that. But yet we have access to power that gives us the ability to overcome that. And the understanding to do that starts with the idea of temptation. We all deal with temptation. We know what that's like. We know what that feels like when those two things pop on our shoulders and we're trying to struggle and we have those emotions and they come on about us and we're like, what do we, how do we, what decision do we make? How do we get over that? And I want to start off very important this morning by telling you that temptation in itself is not sin. You see, temptation, for many of us, we think, well, I've already been tempted, so I might as well, you know, just go ahead and, and just do it. But that's a lie from the enemy. The Bible tells us something drastically different. And I want you to understand that temptation is just the enticement to fulfill our sin. The temptation is not sin itself. And we know this because of what the Bible tells us. And at first, it tells us this, that Jesus himself was tempted. Jesus was fully man, fully God. He came to this earth. He did not sin, but yet he was tempted. And we see this in Matthew chapter 4. And it says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For forty days and forty nights he fasted and became very hungry. 
During that time, the devil came and asked him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you were to continue reading in Matthew 4, you would see that the devil tempted Jesus again and again and again. And every time Jesus said, no, no, no. So if Jesus was perfect and everything that we believe is based upon his ability to be perfect for us and die for us, then if Jesus was tempted, then temptation is not sin. So I think it's really important for us all to know that is that when that temptation comes, we haven't done anything wrong. It's the action after it that kind of gets us in trouble. The second thing is this, is that the Bible tells us we always have a way out. Look at James 4, 7. It says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Again, resist the devil. When we submit ourselves to God, when we step into that relationship with God, We can resist him, not because of us, but because of God that's in us. So when we submit to God's authority in our life, then we have the ability to resist the devil. It's not a matter of if it's coming, it's a matter of when it's coming. But you and I have the power, because of Jesus in us, to resist. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. So you're not alone. Everybody goes through this. Everybody who's walked this planet has felt the ideas of temptation. But God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. Now think about that just for a second. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. You know, I've often thought sometimes when I'm in the moment and those feelings are coming on, and I don't know if you've been like this too, where it's just, it's just hard. You know you don't want to do it, as Paul said, but you end up doing it, and and it's like, why? I I can't fight it off. But the reality is that God doesn't give us any more temptation than what we can stand. So he knows our limitations. He knows what we can take, but yet we still have to kind of go through it. And the realities of that is because he wants us to depend upon him. And look at the last part of this verse. It says, when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Every time we're tempted, there's going to be a way out. That's the good news. Every time. We just have to be open to it and know where it is. So today we're going to look at two examples of guys in the Bible in the Old Testament, two totally separate time periods, but a temptation that is very similar. And we're going to see how they reacted to that temptation and how the different paths that they took. So let's start in Genesis, Genesis 39, and we're going to talk about Joseph. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Mark told us a little little bit more about Joseph's life, and we kind of got the the 30,000-foot view of Joseph and all that happened. I mean, he eventually becomes second in command of Egypt. And to kind of give you a little history of, of what took place before we start the story this morning... And that is when he was born, he was born into a family, he had 11 brothers. He was the one of 12 kids and he was the favorite. The Bible tells us he was the favorite of his father. He was the youngest, he was the baby, he was spoiled, and he was the favorite. Right? Some of you in here go, I know exactly what that's like. I've got little brothers and sisters just like that, right? 
Well, his brothers did not like him. I mean, did not like him at all. And the story is, is somewhat sad in the fact that they, they stole him away and they lied to their father and told their father that they, he had died. And what they really did was they sold him into slavery to this traveling group. And so that traveling group goes into Egypt and then they, they basically, that's what they would do. That's how they made their income is they would purchase people and resell them for more. It's sad, but it's the reality of the situation during that culture. So they go into Egypt and they sell Joseph to a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar was a high-ranking official in Egypt. And so Joseph goes into Potiphar's house. He becomes a servant of Potiphar. But, but in time, God blesses Joseph. Joseph works hard. He remains his, in, his, in his relationship with God. And he ascends to a very high position in Potiphar's house. And that's where we pick up the story. In Genesis 39-2, it says this. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of the Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. So one of the things I want to look at first is this is a path now that we're on. Joseph is on a path. And the very first thing we notice about Joseph is that he walks with God. He walks with God. Let me encourage you with this, that fighting off temptation, fighting off and finding victory over temptation must begin and start with your personal relationship with God. If you don't have a personal relationship with God, the concept of overcoming temptation or overcoming sin is going to be very difficult. But the good news is that anybody can begin and start that relationship with God simply by believing and trusting in him and believing and trusting in Jesus. But once we start that relationship with God, we have to cultivate that relationship. We have to grow in that relationship. We have to spend time with him. And Joseph did just that. We see it in this verse. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph understood that even through the most difficult times of what he had already gone through, he continued to cultivate that. He spent time with God. He walked with God. So as we see here in a moment when the temptations come, he's got the framework. He's got step one already down, which takes us to step two. And we see this in Genesis 39, 6 through 9. It says, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built man. And Potiphar's wife, Sue, began to look at him lustfully. Come to bed with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. So Joseph's past step number two is deny the sin. Deny it. Just say no. I mean, we saw that earlier with Jesus in Matthew 4, right? When the enemy, the devil, come on and was tempting Jesus, Jesus literally said no. It reminds me when my kids were, were small and they were little and they were just kind of, you know, learning to walk and run around and they realized they were mobile. And so uh, they would begin running around and we would try, you know, we'd play zone defense. We would try just to keep up with it. And ultimately, sometimes you would see, you know, you turn this way and your kid would go this way and you see they're getting ready to head towards something that's going to hurt them. And you can't get there in time to stop them, so what do you do? No, 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 no. And they stop. Now, if your kids are like my kids, they maybe stopped for three seconds and then they continued on. But they stopped. 
And there's something in our mind that triggers when we hear that word no. And it's critical. Try that when you're in the middle and that temptation comes on to understand that you belong to God. And what's going to happen here in front of you is going to be a sin against God. And just say it, no. No. Just say no. I'm not going to do that. Well, unfortunately for Joseph, the story doesn't end there. It continues on. That temptation continues to come back and back and back. And so we see it in Genesis 39, verse 10. And it says this, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. And he kept out of her way as much as possible. That leads us to step three. Sometimes when temptation comes, we have to stay away. We have to stay away. We have to get to where we know that it's not going to, we're not going to be able to handle that. Don't go to areas that will challenge your ability to say no. In other words, if you struggle with alcohol, don't go to the bar. If you struggle with gambling and losing your money, it's probably not a good idea to get on a plane and take a vacation to Las Vegas. Right? I mean, it sounds simple, but it's so true. Stay away from the areas that you know you're going to have a hard time saying no. Be consistent with it. And that's what Joseph was doing. He knew that he, this was going to be there. And he knew that Potiphar's wife had already kind of, you know, come on with him with the whole Joey Tribbiani thing and how you doing. And he, I mean, he was trying to step back. And he was finding these areas, so he knew that. He knew it was going to be difficult. So he just stayed away. But it continues. Look at what happens in verses 11 through 12. It says, one day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. Now, I want to come back to this verse, but I want to stop there just for a second and, and point out a very important truth that oftentimes when we... When we step over the line and we, we go from temptation to sin, and we'll talk about this in a moment, there's nobody else around. And we think, we think we can get by with it. So Joseph is here and nobody's around. And she came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come to bed with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Step four we need to feel that temptation and then flee. Feel it and then flee. Now to this point, Joseph had done everything he needed to do. But yet here the temptation is coming toward him. It's coming after him. Now if we continue to read the story in verses 13 through 20, you'll see that what happens is, is that he's done everything right, but Potiphar's wife now is frustrated. And now she has Joseph's cloak. So she makes up this elaborate lie about Joseph to her husband when he comes home and says, oh, this Hebrew you brought in tried to come in here and do all these things. And it was all fabricated lie. And Potiphar got so upset and mad. He took Joseph and he threw him in prison. Now, the first time I read that, you probably thought what I did. Man, he should have done it anyway. I mean, just being honest with you. But he remained faithful because he understood this principle that there are consequences to our actions. And God's blessings will come, and that's step five. And his blessings will follow when we just obey him and do what is right. Look at Genesis 39, 21 through 23. 
It says, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. And look at the next phrase. It was said again, the same phrase that was said before we went into this story. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. So even in this very difficult situation where he's wrongly accused, Joseph was faithful. And because of that, God was faithful back and began to use him in a new area. And he saw success because of God's blessing. Here's the thing now, as we go to the second story, it can be drastically different if we don't decide in our life to go to the same path that Joseph went. And so the second part of this is with a guy named David. And we're very probably very familiar with David. King David was a great king of Israel. This is the same David that was picked by God and anointed by God to become king. He was the same David who, who took the stone and defeated Goliath. He's the same David that brought tremendous victory and support and unification of it. He was this great and awesome king. He could have anything he wanted if he just asked God and God would give it to him. In fact, God said, this is a man after my own heart. I mean, we could look at David if this was a movie and it was kind of, you know, playing out in front of us. And this would, he would be the hero of the movie. You know, he's the guy that we're rooting for. He's the guy that, yeah, he's awesome. And then this temptation comes along, very similar to Joseph. But he acted completely different. And that's what I want to look at next in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. The Bible says this, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Remember earlier we talked about how we oftentimes find ourselves in places that we shouldn't be? Well, that's was David's challenge right here off the bat. Number one, his first step was that he was alone. He was walking alone. Joseph was walking with God. David walked alone. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. He's supposed to be out with his armies. He's supposed to be out leading his, his troops. But he decided to stay back. And so right off the bat, he's not equipping himself with the armor that God tells us that we need in our lives to overcome those temptations when they come. The story continues on in 2 Samuel 11, 2, 3, 3. It says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So number two, instead of denying the sin, David pursues the sin. Can you see the difference now? It's already starting. It's the story's unfolding and we're watching it. We're going, no, don't, don't, don't do that, David. No, but he's going down that path. Now he's still, he can get out of it. But as we see it as it unfolds, unfortunately, things don't go the right way. He pursued it. He was on the rooftop. He was walking around looking out over his city. 
And he happened to look down, and there he saw, as the Bible says, unusual beauty, meaning there was not many like her. And instead of seeing and fleeing, or seeing and running, and seeing and go, that's not, I don't need to be looking down there, he stopped and he thought. He thought about it, and then he found out more information. He was pursuing it. And look what happens next. 2 Samuel eleven four says this. Then David sent messengers to get her. So number three, Joseph stayed away, but David moved in closer. You remember in, in the story of Joseph when, when he stayed away, the temptations started coming after him? Remember that? And how Potiphar's wife came after him? Well, it's totally flipped now. David's down this path, and he sees something that he wants, he desires, he, he wants more of it. So what does he do? He's pursuing it versus the other way around. He brings Bathsheba to the house, to the palace, to the king's palace. And then we see in 2 Samuel eleven four, 4, when she came to the palace, he slept with her, and then she returned home. So number four, instead of feeling and, and, and fleeing, he felt and stayed he stayed. He didn't flee the moment. He stayed in it, and he enjoyed it. Now, I'm going to kind of be straight with you here. Sin is fun. It is. I mean, it's our, it's our nature. We've already learned that. So when we step into sin, and right in that moment, I mean, it, it's going to, there's some pleasurable things to it. There's some enjoyment to it. That's the lure of it, is that immediate gratification that happens. But oftentimes we lose sight of what can happen after it when we've acted upon it. Think about it like this. You know, if you were to put your thumb right in front of your face and you were to stare at your thumb, everything behind it is blurry because you're only looking at what's right in front of your face. Now, if you keep your thumb right there and then look your focus and go past it, your thumb becomes blurry and everything past it now becomes clear. And see, that's what sin is. Sin right in front of us, we oftentimes only think of it right here. We don't look at the big picture. We don't see the pain. We don't see the consequences. We don't see what could come from behind it. We're only staring what's right in front of our face. And oftentimes we need to be like Joseph. We need to look beyond what that immediate desire is in front of us and see what happens and see what can take place and understand that God's blessings is beyond that. His blessings are so much greater than what's right there in front of us with that sin, that temptation. And that's what happened with David. And that step number five is that pain and suffering will follow. Pain and suffering will always follow sin, no matter what. Now, to kind of quickly tell you what happens with the rest of this story, Bathsheba, as we've seen, has gone away. And then just a few weeks later, Bathsheba comes knocking back on the palace door. David answers it. And she says, hey, David, I'm pregnant. rut -row. As Israel turns, these are the days of our lives. Dum, dum. Right? Now, David has, again, another choice. And he probably stepped back and scratched his head and said, oh, this is not good. I have now, what do I do? Well, he begins to just dig a deeper hole and a deeper hole, and he wants to cover it up. And so he understands that Bathsheba is married to Uriah, and Uriah is one of my soldiers out on the front lines with my generals. And so I got it. I'm going to send note to my generals to bring Uriah back. The king wants to see Uriah, a great, dedicated soldier in the king's army. Uriah comes back to see the king. 
And David says, hey, you're right, you're awesome, thank you so much. And here's what I, I want to give you something. I've sent wine and food to your house. Go, go, Uriah, go home for a night and be with your beautiful wife. Man, that story's unfolding now on the screen, and we see our hero has all of a sudden become this villain. And he's doing things that are out of character. And he's doing things that, he's, what in the world are you doing? Well, Uriah was a good man, and so he understood that I can't do that. It's not fair to the guys that are out there fighting this battle. And so he chose to sleep on the steps of the king's palace instead of going home that night. That plan didn't work. So David continues to dig the pit deeper, and he continues to cover it up more. And so he does, he, he writes this note, and he sends it out to Joab, and he says, put Uriah on the front lines. Because he knows putting on the front, Uriah on the front lines is pretty much going to kill Uriah, and that's exactly what happened. Uriah was killed. And guess what great King David did a few time later? He brought Bathsheba in and married her. Covered it up. Thought he had gotten by with it, but he didn't. And we see this in 2 Samuel 12, 10. God sends a prophet, and this prophet points right at David and says, Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this terrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me, taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. David's pain and consequences because of those actions stayed with him and his family for the rest of not only his life, but his children's lives because of immediate gratification in the moment. But here's the thing. If we're all honest with each other this morning, we would say this. We've probably been there. I know I've been there. Where we've dug ourselves this big hole and we've done things that we don't want to do and we actually have done things and we kind of look at ourselves and go, who am I? What am I doing? But here's the beautiful truth of God's word is that you always have a way out. You always have a way back. The redeeming grace of God through Jesus is always, always, always available to you. No matter what. No matter what. There's always hope. There's always a way back. David understood this. Even in what he did, he penned a great prayer of confession to God. And it's in Psalm 51. And just, just listen to this just for a quick second. It says, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He prays out, oh, give me back my joy again. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Restore to me, God, the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And that's exactly what God did. Did David have to live with the consequences of his actions? Yes, but God restored him and he made him new and he washed it white as snow, as he says in this verse. And the truth of that is this, is that Jesus is waiting and ready to do the exact same thing for you. He is ready to get you out of that pit and to lift you up.
I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised in church with a very strong Christian family. During my late high school years, I started experimenting with alcohol and smoking weed, and that eventually led to other things. I started taking pills and just struggled with some of that my late teen years. Um, and then as I got to college, it just progressed and got worse, uh, led to other drugs. I started experimenting with cocaine and ecstasy and shrooms and just about every drug you can imagine. Um, and it got to the point where I had just completely lost everything, lost all hope. I was hanging around with other people who were using cocaine all day, every day. And the amount of cocaine that I was doing was even scary for, for those people. I remember at one point I was in a parking lot crying, begging my drug dealer to please sell me more cocaine and he refused it because um, he thought I had a problem. But it was to the point where I, I hated it and I didn't understand how you could hate something so much and not stop doing it. So I actually prayed a prayer, God, please do whatever it takes for me to stop this, other than my parents finding out. Kind of got to the point where I was, I gave up on myself. I just thought, well, this is just who I am. I'm just a drug addict. I'm just an alcoholic. This is just the way God made me. You know, I thought, God, why did you make me this way? Why did you <clears throat> give me these tendencies and this addictive personality? Um, but I'd kind of gotten to the point where I had just given up on myself. I thought I was a lost cause. Um, it was just very hopeless feeling. And it was all, you know, I put on the, the happy face and, and around everyone, but it was, just this, it was just this double life that I was living. The drinking, got to the point where I was, you know, getting blackout drunk every single night. And it was, a lot of it was done in public, but there was a lot of it done in, in secret too. And I got a DWI, I, uh, you know, I wrecked my car and it's just one thing after another. Um, God was just trying to get my attention and I just refused to listen. I woke up one day and I made a choice. I knew that if I were to continue down this road that I was gonna kill myself or someone else. So I told a really good friend of mine um, that I needed help and <clears throat> she kept me accountable to that. I knew it was gonna be hard to stop but I knew that God just wanted me to make that first step and that if I made the first step, that he was gonna reach down and, and grab me out of that deep pit that I dug myself into. Um, and so I knew that all I had to do was make the choice and step into what he has, and I knew that he would help me out. 
one of the things I love so much about COF is just their love for people. You can really come as you are, and this is a home for, for everyone. Everyone is welcome. Um, like Mark always says, we're just one big dysfunctional family. Uh, throughout some of my struggles here, my friends at, at Community of Faith have just loved me and walked with me uh, through some of those hard times and struggles, and they didn't judge me, but they just were there for me. They stood with me. They prayed with me. They prayed for me and just loved me through it. There's a Bible verse that I really love. It's Psalm 40, verse 2, and I think that, that those few lines tell my story perfectly. It says that he lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock and gave me a firm foundation to stand. And he put a new song in my heart. Lifted me up, you lifted me out, out of the deep dark now it is you, amen, you lifted me up, you lifted me After truly surrendering 100% to God, because in the past it's always been, you can have this and this and this and this, but I'm going to hold on to this one thing. After I finally gave it all up to Him completely, um, I'm three years sober today, which is amazing because I remember for years and years and years it'd be a really big deal for me to go one or two days without a drink or a drug. Um, so I'm an overcomer and I've been redeemed and God has completely shifted my life and I'll never look back and I'll never be the same. No matter what you've done, Jesus is there. You say, Bradley, you don't understand, man. You don't know what I've done and you don't know how many times I've tripped over myself and over and over again. There's no way. Yes, there is a way. And it's because of Jesus. I'm going to go back to the first uh, verse that we saw earlier when Paul in Romans chapter 7. And look at this last part of that. It says, I love God's law with all my heart. There is another power within me that is at war with my mind. 
The power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Earlier we saw David pour out his heart asking God to cleanse him in Psalm 51. And that same word cleanse can be found again in 1 John 1, 9 when the Bible tells us this, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse, there's that word, from us from all unrighteousness. And that word cleanse is so key. Literally, the Greek word is katharizo, which means to purify, to remove all filth. The verb tense actually is I make clean. God is waiting to make you clean. And when we think of that word clean, we immediately think of the image of water, a cleansing. Do you know in the Bible that rain is a sign of God's blessing, his cleansing? How many of you this morning need to be cleansed by God? How many of you need his mercy? How many of you need his grace? How many of you need his blessing?